circulation. I'm not sure if we do this morning, but if you have yours from last week, we'll be finishing up our chapter 30 and then begin chapter 31. So if you see those, I think there may be some there on the back of uh, the table in the entryway. We've read of the necessity of the, the discipline of the church. We, we see these keys of the kingdom. They have a positive and a negative application. They're to be uh, exercised positively in opening the kingdom of God to those who are lost, in welcoming them into the house of God's people by sharing the gospel, by um, hearing the profession of faith, and by welcoming all those who would profess faith in Christ and desire to stand with the people of God into the house of God. And then negatively, of course, we've seen that uh, these officers that are appointed to govern in the name and on behalf of Jesus Christ according to his word and not their own will, uh, they are to uh, oversee and comfort and pray for and with and teach and instruct those within that house of God and all of this in the word of God. And in the case of one who had professed a faith in Christ and has entered that house, and begins to wander from the path of fellowship with Jesus Christ in submission to his word, these officers are to be under shepherds, to go after the straying sheep, to seek their repentance, to, to call them back to the Lord Jesus Christ and to what they had once professed. And in uh, and, and early interventions, if you will, uh, this should be the normal practice uh, within the church. It should be uh, it shouldn't be the case that we think of, of the discipline of the church, even in this negative sense, uh, as, as something to be avoided at all costs. But it is God's own provision for us that we would not uh, just wander and wander and wander until miles away spiritually we are snared in the briar patch of sin or fallen off the, the cliff face. Uh, but we're to be uh, called back and, and were to respond to that call. And by God's grace, often that, that happens. In the case of one who rejects those early calls of, of, of um, pastoral concern and an elder coming and, and seeking to admonish, we've seen that there is a, a gradation of approach that the, the officer isn't just to say, well, I tried and uh, we'll just see how this goes. Uh, but they're to continue with the persistence, the patience, and the gentleness of Jesus Christ himself in, in going after that sheep, as Jesus gave the image of, of the shepherd, the good shepherd, who, who has all of these sheep, 99 in the fold safe. Uh, he doesn't just cut his losses and say, well, I'm, you know, 99%'s not bad. But he leaves those safely in the fold and, and will go and spend his time and energy uh, to seek after that lost sheep and to go and reclaim it. And that is to be the approach and the attitude of his under-shepherds, that we are, again, not to uh, leave off of this pursuit of those who are straying, but to pursue them um, and to be persistent in that. And so we see this as we, we've looked last week, the, the language of Scripture of, of admonish, that's something more than just general instruction. That's more personal, of, of 
these officers, these elders, uh, coming and, and calling someone uh, to recognize a situation in their life that is out of accord with their profession of obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to call them to repent. If they, if they heed and, and return and repent, then all is well and praise God for that blessing. If they refuse that, if they reject the admonition, uh, then we saw last week that it's to uh, progress. And we looked at the example from, uh, we see that from reading 1 Thessalonians to 2 Thessalonians. We had these who were given over to idleness and uh, just living off of the generosity of others uh, within the family of God, especially, and uh, who were just going from house to house, spending their days, eating their meals at others' expense, not contributing productively to the kingdom of God and the life of God's people. And they were to be admonished in 1 Thessalonians. And when we come to 2 Thessalonians, those who were still continuing uh, were to be um, even, even a stricter next step in terms of being um, a, a delineation within the fellowship of God's people. They, they were to be more formally uh, dealt with in a temporary suspension even from coming to the Lord's table. Again, the, the call that should accompany that invitation to come and partake of Jesus Christ by faith in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're to discipline ourselves. You remember reading that language in 1 Corinthians 11. If we disciplined ourselves or judged ourselves, we would not be judged. If we would follow an answer and heed the call of Jesus Christ in coming to the table, um, then we, we would, as, as it says, judge ourselves, repent of our own sin, and then come and enjoy the forgiveness of Christ. Well, what is to happen with a person who continues to come to the table, but it has become evident, and they are even resistant to correction, they're not doing that. They're not disciplining or judging themselves and the wrongs they're doing, but they're continuing to come to the Lord's table. Well, those who are charged to serve that table to God's people are also charged if, if one is rejecting that admonition, a clear violation of Scripture, uh, they're not to be allowed to continue coming and eating greater judgment upon themselves as we read there in 1 Corinthians 11. But they are to be um, forbidden from coming for a time, for a season, the confession says. And that's certainly, I think, what's in view there in Second Thessalonians, uh, not an indefinite uh, suspension, but for a season of, of continued and more serious calling of one to repentance, that you can see the consequences are, are, are becoming more and more clear. You cannot have a profession of faith in Christ and enjoy the blessing of fellowship with Him and partaking of Him by faith and give yourself willingly and stubbornly over to the practice of sin. It is to require the repentance of sin in coming by faith to Jesus Christ. And so you can't, you can't deceive yourself into thinking that you can have it both ways. And so we, we read that in uh, Second Thessalonians about do not even eat with such a one. Uh, we also read those instructions in First Corinthians 11. And so 
Uh, that would speak to this, this phrase in the confession in paragraph 4. For the better attaining of these ends, the officers of the church are to proceed by admonition, suspension from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper for a season, and by excommunication from the church according to the nature of the crime and demerit of the person. And so either in a case of just such a, a gross violation of the will of God, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, when you have just given yourself into open and gross sin and a violation of God's word, as, as we read about that man who had taken his stepmother as his own wife and was living with her, Paul, he, he went straight to, you have to put this man outside the church until he repents. Uh, there, this is of such urgency that uh, we, must, we must even begin with that. And so either in a case like that or in something like Paul was dealing with in Thessalonians, this matter of idleness and not uh, giving oneself to the productive labor of God's kingdom, providing for oneself, one's family, if, if you have a family. Paul was more patient with that in, in his dealings. He, he, he admonished them. He called upon the pastor and the elders to admonish. He then uh, described this matter of you, you may not eat with such a one, I think a reference to especially the Lord's Supper. Uh, but he says, do not regard him as an enemy, but as a brother. Uh, if, if such a one would continue on and not heed even these warnings, uh, then they would leave no choice. But what we read in our next scripture reference here in 1 Corinthians 5 again, uh, which is to be put outside uh, the household of God to be put outside, to be excommunicated. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, we read the description of this, and we've read the chapter last week, so we'll just read these specifically referenced verses describing this act of excommunication as something that Paul required in this case by the authority of the Holy Spirit and something that other cases would end in if there is not repentance after uh, a season of calls to repentance. In verse 3, uh, Paul, in reference to this case of the man and his stepmother, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver this man to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And then down in verse 13, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And so this, this idea that the keys of the kingdom does involve not only the opening of the door and the welcoming in, not only the, the shepherding and the the, the calls, the ministry of the Word of God to those within that house, but also it may, in a case such as this, of extreme re rebellion against the Lordship of Jesus Christ or prolonged rejection of calls to submit to His Word, it will lead to being put back outside uh, the, the fellowship and the communion of the church. Now, there, there is... Certainly, that's a sobering thing to consider. It's not to be done lightly. 
Uh, it's not to be done casually or joyfully. But we, we have to consider the consequences of refusing to do that. And there have sadly been many expressions of the church that uh, would come to this and just shy away. This is just too judgmental. It's too, um, uh, you know, they would make an appeal, for example, to uh, the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus, which is certainly true. He's loving and gracious and merciful, but it's in the same Bible that we read this. Uh, you can't pit the Word of God against itself. What are the consequences of this? Well, I want you to notice uh, what Paul says in explaining why this must be the case in verse 9 of this very chapter. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. What we see here is, is that the very definition of the church, the very reality of the church, is defined in terms of a separation from the world. If there is not a separation from the world, then there isn't a church. Jesus has called us, that's the very term, the name, that is given to the church more than any other in, in, the, in the New Testament. The ecclesia, the called out. Uh, it, it is an echo of the Old Testament language of God calling Abraham to follow him and to, to give himself in separating from his old life, his old associations, even uh, his family heritage there in Tehran, to give himself to God as his covenant child, a dedication of life. Apart from that, if you don't have that, you don't have a people of God. And that's sadly the, the result. In, in an act of, of uh, claimed compassion, what much of the church has done is compromised with the world, has been so polluted by the world as to be of no help to the world, no, no benefit at all. And certainly when we look at what Scripture says about the, the life of the people of God, well, if you've just given your, yourself open, you've taken the doors off the hinges, if you will. Jesus talks about the keys of the kingdom. Well, we, we've gotten rid of the door. And there is no, there is no ministry and blessing as, as the people of God in the Old Testament were to be that picture of fellowship with God and blessing of God and how that could be attained through a life of covenant faith and obedience in, in the Lord Jesus Christ who had yet to come but was nonetheless promised as the Messiah, a, a giving oneself to that fellowship and that obedience uh, as to be a, a light and a hope and a beacon to the whole world. That was the purpose. You remember God's promise even to Abraham was, in you shall all the nations of the world be blessed. It, it had... Many times we could look at in the Old Testament 
an eye to the ultimate blessing and salvation of the world, all of which would just be foiled and delayed and, and a failure to accomplish when the people of Israel, for example, would compromise with the world. Where is the, where's the beacon and the hope and the light and the, the picture of blessing and the illustration of the gospel, the gospel lived out? Where, where can we point to and say, look at the blessing of what faith in Jesus Christ looks like. Look at the difference it makes. Look at the blessing in homes and marriages and parenting and children and relationships and calling and all of life. Look at that difference. Look at the blessing of God upon you and desire that and come by faith in Christ to partake of it. When the church refuses this crucial step, of the discipline of the church, and she shies away and says, well, that's just too harsh. I'm not willing to do that. She is, in that moment, giving all of this away. She's putting herself on a course of compromise, of the pollution, of, of this wickedness that is in the world that makes the world so full of misery and darkness. She's allowing that inside, and it is a corrupting influence. It's like the leaven that leavens the loaf. You know, we're, we're called to be. The kingdom of God is, is described as the leaven in the lump. We're supposed to transform the world with a witness for Christ. But evil can have such a corrupting influence itself. And this is why Paul says, he, he, he uses this language, this contrast of the church and the world in explaining the necessity of why they must do that. Well, why couldn't they? Just be tolerant of this man who was living in such open rejection against the Lord Jesus. Well, it's, it's putting a lie on the gospel. The gospel says you, you repent of your sin. You can be delivered from that. You can be delivered from the, the barren and bitter ways of the world. And you can be trained and discipled in the Lord Jesus to, to walk in a path of obedience to God through the power of His Holy Spirit. And you can enter into incredible blessings in this life and have eternal life to come. All of this through the work of Jesus Christ. And when the church allows that evil back inside, she's compromising not only in that situation, but her entire message. Well, there, there really isn't a difference between the church and the world. And you can certainly sympathize with the motivations that are professed. You know, we want to uh, be welcoming. We want to um, have open arms. We want to encourage people to, to not uh, be standoffish or to think that they're unworthy to come. Again, you can sympathize with this because the gospel itself, Jesus would take the gospel to, to anyone who would hear it. But it wasn't at the cost of holiness or the cost of fellowship with God. And it, it was with a message of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It, it was a message of you can be delivered from the bondage of sin and brought into the service of Jesus Christ. You can be delivered from the old master and serve a new master. And the church, when she refused, when she balks at this step of discipline, in the name of professed kindness, she is, in fact, polluting her message, covering her light, mixing uh, light and darkness, good and evil. 
and she is neutralized by compromise with the world. And you will have people who, who come. You, you remember in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul urges them to keep the word of God central in their worship. And that when a, a stranger would come into their midst, they would hear the powerful voice of God in his word, and they would know that God is in your midst. Well, that's the testimony we want to have. Sadly, when people go into so many, so many churches in our own day and time, they can't sense that they've left the world and come into anything different. And sadly, this is done with the claim that, well, we're the people of God, and this is the gospel. And this is what Christianity offers those who follow after Jesus. Well, that's no different than what I have. That's the same brokenness in life that I have. Why, why would I come? And it, you can see that it has neutralized the, the gospel message in so many ways. And so uh, although it, it is uh, a very stern thing, it's a very sobering thing, uh, nonetheless, it's an essential thing for the church to be willing to do, to be willing to, to hold the line that God puts in front of us in terms of what his word says. We all must hold one another accountable to obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, with patientness and grace, uh, but nonetheless, uh, we, we cannot compromise on that. Or what are we? We're, we're not the church of God any longer. We're just uh, a department of the world, uh, make-believe make as, as the people of God. So that, that leads us to uh, the very last two verses in this paragraph, Matthew 18, 17. Another description, again, using Old Testament descriptions, um, these would be the, the terms of the Old Testament church in terms of how to define relationship with a person. Uh, notice there in Matthew 18, 17, if he refuses to listen to them. And so this is the, the end of the process of someone who had begun with a, a matter of sin that was offending a brother. He's been appealed to. Uh, witnesses have come. The elders have come. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, our relationship to one another has to be defined by and along the lines of our relationship personally with the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. That if, if a person would say, well, yes, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, but they would live a life of persistent rejection of God's will. Well, we can't acknowledge that profession as a legitimate, a credible profession of faith. And it is the, the job of the elders of the church to, to sit down and hear this and, and call that person to repent. And if they refuse, then to declare well, this person is rejecting their own profession of faith with this rejection of God's word. And what are the results? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, if you were in the Old Testament people of God, those terms were pretty 
significant. They communicated something pretty clear, that those were those who were outside the loving fellowship of God's people. Someone who was outside the covenant community of the people of God. All right, let's also look at Titus chapter 3. And, and this is the same thing, of course, after uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, after the day of Pentecost. Here we are clearly in the what, what some call the New Testament age of the church. And what is Titus, as a young pastor, being urged in the instruction of God's word? In verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This phrase, have nothing more to do with him, is the practical effect of excommunication. If you, if you won't hear, we all have to submit, all of us to the authority of God's word, the officers of the church, the elders, they have to submit to the authority of God's word all the same as each member of the church of God. And for a person who rejects that when an officer, an elder, is bringing the, the word of God, it's like, well, let me, let me seek to, to help you understand this. Here's what God says. And for a person to just blow that off, reject that, well, no, I've got these opinions and I, I'm going to be insistent. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. And so it would even be sinful on the part of the church to just leave this open-ended. Why? Well, we have the statement of God's word to, to instruct us, but why would that be the case? The corrupting influence of sin. If there is one who is openly rejecting the authority of Jesus Christ, well, you can't allow that to continue on unaddressed. They will lead many astray. It's, it's just like the book of Hebrews makes a reference back to the same teaching in the Sermon of Moses in Deuteronomy about the root of bitterness. The root of bitterness. You can't allow someone to stand up and profess new gods, as Moses described it. You can't allow a root of bitterness to spring up in your midst and not deal with it, lest many be defiled by it, as Hebrews warns. All right, so that, that brings us to the conclusion of the chapter on church discipline. Now, in terms of uh, a second aspect of this matter of the authority of the church is that these officers aren't to act in independence, ultimately, uh, but God has provided a government of the church that acknowledges and, and builds upon the wisdom of God's word that he has taught. For example, 
that there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. We see that reflected in the structure of the government of the church that provides for the protection of God's people. You know, even the the most well-intentioned, even the most well-studied officer of the church is still susceptible to error, um, even with the best of intentions. And so God has provided that there would be elders, plural, in each particular church, and that, by God's grace, will, will be a help and a safeguard and a protection for God's people, not to be falling uh, prey to the errors and misconceptions of any one person. But even more than that, there is a broader sense of the government of the church. And this is, this is where the Presbyterian form of church government differs from the congregational form of church government. We agree at the congregational level of plurality of elders and God providing the officers of the local church to be charged with the care of God's people. But the Presbyterian form of church government sees a second truth in Scripture that is added to that, and that is that there is a broader sense of the the courts of the church or the, the gatherings of the elders of the church that may be called for and is to function to serve as a a help to each individual congregation. We have an example of this, uh, and we'll read this in the book of Acts, chapter 15. You remember the Jerusalem Council. What happens when you have different officers in the church, different elders that can't come to agreement? God hasn't left it that, that well, automatically you just have to separate from one another. You have to split the church, you have to form separate congregations or any such thing. But what God has provided that by his blessing will secure peace for the church is a broader gathering of elders to hear that matter and to seek the broader body of elders, seeking the the wisdom of God's word and applying that, that might serve as uh, a, a court of appeals, if you will. And so let's read what our confession says. And I will, I will read the original um, in this case. This is one of the few places where there's a more substantial change from what was written in the 1640s to what we have adopted as a church, which is the addition... Uh, known as the American edition, uh, as, as changed in the late 1700s. And the original, uh, I'll read, and then I'll read the American uh, edition, and you'll, you'll hear the difference, and it, it has to do with the relationship between the magistrate, the civil magistrate, and the governors or the, the elders of the church. I think you'll, you'll hear the difference. Uh, First, I'll read the original. For the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils, as magistrates may lawfully call a synod of ministers and other fit persons to consult and advise with about matters of religion, 
So if magistrates be open enemies to the church, the ministers of Christ of themselves by virtue of their office, or they with other fit persons, upon delegation from their churches, may meet together in such assemblies. Now, I want you to notice something significant in that there at the end. This provided that magistrates may call for a gathering of the elders of the church to advise on a matter of religion. That's not to say that that's in and of itself wrong. I think uh, a civil ruler should be able to ask for elders who should be godly and wise men to gather and study God's word and answer a question for him. But notice how this was framed. It's... um, It says, if magistrates be open enemies to the church, the ministers of Christ of themselves by virtue of their office may meet together in such assemblies. And this strongly indicated that uh, if, if a magistrate wasn't an open enemy of the church, that the officers of the church were not free by virtue of their office to determine they needed to meet and to resolve an issue. And so this was revised along with the chapter on the civil magistrate, which has kind of a corollary um, in it. And um, the new version, I'll read that now. For the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils, and it belongeth to the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches by virtue of their office and the power which Christ hath given them for edification and not for destruction, to appoint such assemblies and to convene together in them as often as they shall judge it expedient for the good of the church. And they make reference to Acts 15 in several different verses throughout that. And so the the significant difference there is that it, it... preserves and and clearly states the freedom and the responsibility to gather these broader courts of the church is native to, it's normally, and it does belong to, in fact, the church herself that they may freely assemble, not at the request of a magistrate unless he's an open enemy of the church, but simply because this is what Christ has given them. It's part of their responsibility. And they don't depend upon a magistrate to call an assembly for them to be allowed to meet. I think that's a very clearly uh, biblical improvement on the language of the first. And it's helpful to remember the, uh, the setting of that original assembly. This was back in the 1600s in England. And the Parliament of England was actually the body, the the instigating um, what what brought about the gathering of what's known as the Westminster Assembly. It it was a politically requested gathering uh, for the purpose of establishing doctrinal norms that would be recognized as the the uh, recognized church of that time. And, of course, there was a great power struggle between the parliament and the king at this time, and it it didn't really ever become implemented in its intended purpose, but 
the, the elders of the church were willing to come and answer the question of what does the Christian faith uh, mean in terms of what does the Bible teach about the doctrine we are to believe. They, they were willing to gather and meet, and the Scottish Presbyterian Church did uh, meet and adopt this as its confession of faith after that, and certain uh, English Presbyterians certainly recognized it as well. But all of that to say, it, it um, didn't help clarify the issue of how such councils ought to be ordinarily and, and where the power to call them does in fact reside, and that is within the church. She is free if, if there is an issue, that's what we see in Acts 15. If there is an issue requiring this broader gathering of elders, well, the church has it within her own uh, responsibility and provision by the Lord Jesus to call for that assembly of elders to hear and settle this. It has no, no reference, no relation to the magistrate uh, of the time whether regionally or in terms of the Roman Empire, no, no connection at all. And it, uh, is, it just militates against the, the Scriptures in terms of what God teaches about the, the government of the church being separate from that of the state. It was, I think, an inconsistency in the original. But uh, we said the the modern edition, well, that's dating back to the 17, late 1780s, 1789. So it's been changed for a while. All right, well, I think we've reached the end of our time. So we'll look at those scripture references, especially in Acts 15, and we'll look at how the Lord has provided for this government in the example of the Jerusalem Council and what that teaches us about Presbyterian uh form of church government, that there are these broader assemblies that may be called to address a conflict or an issue or provide for the better government of the church. Let's pray and we'll seek God's blessing on us. Lord, we do thank you for your word and we thank you that it alone is the lamp for our feet, the light for our path. It alone is the authority of what we are to believe, and we thank you for the efforts of your people in bygone generations who have undertaken the great task of, of committing to writing their understanding of what the scriptures taught, that we might benefit from that understanding and make progress building upon uh, those who have come before. Lord, we thank you that we can even today study the confession of faith of the church as these scripture references are included. We can turn to your word and we can see uh, much that is of help to us in understanding what your word teaches. Lord, we do thank you for the government of the church. We thank you for those that you call and give to be under shepherds in and among your people. And we do ask, Lord, for grace and strength to fill each one who undertakes this calling. We pray that your spirit would indeed fill them with uh, every gift and the perseverance to show, in fact, the very heart of Jesus Christ for his sheep.
as the great shepherd and and being willing to pursue with love and persistence uh, those who would uh, begin to wander and stray. Lord, you alone can change a heart, so we look to you to continually bless those efforts. And we ask that you would do that, Lord, even in our own time. We pray, Father, that you would uh, be at work in situations that um, the elders are, are seeking these very things. Father, we do thank you that you have called us to be separate from the world, just as you called Abraham. Uh, we are the called out, the, the ecclesia. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to uh, embrace the holiness of life that this calls for without being given over to arrogance or pride or superiority of mind, exalting ourselves over those who are apart from your grace. For as we read in 1 Corinthians, what do we have that we did not receive? Lord, we pray that we would in fact be stirred to compassion as the Lord Jesus was in looking out upon those who were so lost and seeing them as sheep without a shepherd and seeing a field that is ripe to harvest and would perish apart from being gathered in. Lord, we pray that you would give us that heart of compassion, that sense of urgency, that we would be more earnest in our prayers and our lives that we would uh, undertake to do all we can to live in such a way as becomes the followers of Jesus, to live in such a way as to be uh, the light in the world, uh, the salt of the earth. Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to have such a faithful and consistent witness that there would be many coming to us asking for the reason, uh, for the hope that is within us, and that we would be uh, equipped and ready with the message of the gospel that you, Lord Jesus, are the reason for every blessing in our lives. Lord, we pray for the preaching ministry of your church. We pray that it would be restored to the faithful exposition of your word, that your voice, again, would be heard from the pulpits of your church. And we pray that you would bless that in our own case, even today, we pray that you would come and meet with us and bless our brother John O'Rourke as he brings your word to us. We pray that he would be filled with your spirit, that each of us would have a heart open and hungry to receive your word and respond with faith and obedience. Lord, please continue your work among us. We thank you for your patience. Forgive us, Lord, for the times we have grieved your spirit with our slowness of heart. We ask that you would help us, help us to respond and to, to have a heart that is uh, teachable and, and open to you. And we pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.